So we need a logo. Yes. Like any good podcast, we need a visualization of what we are chatting about so that we can lure some people in. Yeah, some fancy graphics. Here's what I'm thinking, Tom. I've got an idea. I want you to picture us and there's like a van and you're in the driving seat like waving out the window and I'm like coming to the back of the van carrying a large box. What's in the box, you say? CO2, putting it in the van because it's a removal van removing carbon. Boom. (laughs) I get it. It's like, we are the carbon removal people. Sort of a, who are you going to call situation? You're going to call us because we remove the carbon. Does that mean we've nailed it and come up with the best logo idea ever? I think we probably have. It's going to be the background for my laptop. We can't deny that societally we have a problem with carbon. And the question is, how do we get this one-way carbon traffic that's being pumped into our atmosphere back into a natural cycle? From where I'm sitting, that kind of feels like a truly monumental shift. I think it is, and I think it's a vital one. I'm Tom Praviti. And I'm Emily Swaddle. And this is The Carbon Removal Show. Over the course of this series, we're going to explore carbon removal. What it is, what it looks like, why it's important, who's doing it right now, and generally what all the fuss is about. Unfussing the fuss. Yeah, exactly. So in this episode, we'll be introducing the problem and discussing why carbon removal is increasingly being seen as a major part of the solution. Essentially, we're going to be asking why are we interested in carbon removal and why do we need it now? I think honestly most people know the problem by now, certainly the people listening to this podcast. Honestly, you only need to take sort of a quick glance at the news, turn it on for three seconds at the minute, and you'll see that the world is really waking up to the reality of anthropogenic climate change. Mostly because we're seeing real-time effects right in front of us, on our streets. Anthropogenic climate change, that's essentially climate change due to human activities, which could include burning fossil fuels or deforestation or farming. Yep, it's here whether we like it or not. We do not. And it's likely going to get a lot worse. And right now, we're just acting too slowly to make the changes that we need to make. At its most simple, this is really a problem of mathematics. So let's look at the basics. We know that a major cause of anthropogenic climate change is the release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. These include gases like methane, nitrous oxide and water vapour. But by far the worst offender is carbon dioxide. CO2. This is both because we're releasing it in very large quantities and because once it's released, it stays in the atmosphere for a really, really long time, meaning it can continue to heat up the planet for hundreds or even thousands of years. Right. And for the sake of simplicity, throughout this series, we'll be referring to our emissions in terms of carbon dioxide equivalents. And this is a handy way for us to lump together all these greenhouse gases into one simple metric. We know that human activities are currently releasing about 50 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalents into the atmosphere each year. A gigaton is a billion tonnes. We know that plenty of these gases already exist in the atmosphere in lower levels. So I want to picture a bit more specifically what the problem is here. The idea that we have too much carbon in the atmosphere right now, 
It's just a bit too vague for me. So, Tom, I told you this was a maths problem, and I've got some numbers for you. Come on, Emily, hit me. Before we started pumping out CO2 with that manic intensity that we did during and following on from the Industrial Revolution, the global average concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere was about 280 parts per million. That means for every million particles in the atmosphere, 280 of them were CO2. Nowadays, we're getting up to about 420 parts per million, and that number is getting higher every single year. To be honest, these don't really sound like particularly big numbers. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose it's true, like we're not in the thousands or anything, and we're talking parts per million, but those carbon dioxide molecules have a major effect on global heating. And since we started adding so much CO2 to the atmosphere, we've already seen an increase of over one degree Celsius of global heating. And again, one degree doesn't sound like all that much, but it actually makes a huge difference. And what's really scary, it's how quickly these increases are happening. And this is all happening because our planet just isn't able to cope with the quantities of these greenhouse gases and the speed at which we're emitting them. We've all heard of the carbon cycle, which is this process by which carbon cycles between various Earth systems, such as the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, which is the water, the biosphere, which is the living organisms. Carbon particles are constantly moving between these different parts of the planet, which means that the atmospheric levels of carbon are usually well regulated. Certainly, for as long as human civilizations have been alive, that atmospheric carbon has stayed relatively stable. Yes, until now that is. The rate at which we're emitting carbon dioxide is simply way faster than the Earth's systems can pull it back out of the atmosphere. And because of this, the CO2 that we emit today risks heating up the planet for years to come. So this is a really simplified example I'm going to give you, but let's imagine the emissions from a power plant over the course of one year. 100 years on, models suggest that in effect, 40% of their CO2 is still in the atmosphere. 1,000 years on from those original emissions, 20% is thought to still be there. And even after 10,000 years, 10% of the original emissions will still be in the atmosphere. The actual process and the carbon cycle is a lot more complex than that. But that's just to give you an idea of where our emissions are going or actually where they're staying. Right, so the carbon cycle is out of kilter. Over millions of years, a lot of carbon was locked away, underground, away from the atmosphere. Now, in the space of a couple of hundred years, we've pumped a load of that back into the atmosphere, all at once, so quickly that our natural systems just can't keep up. And this leaves our descendants and the world around them over the next thousand, even 10,000 years to take the heat from our emissions today. But we don't actually have to continue on this path. It's not inevitable. We actually have two levers that we can pull if we want to improve things here. So far, most of the conversation about mitigating climate change has been about reducing the rate at which we pump CO2 into the atmosphere. This is what we're really talking about when we're talking about decarbonisation. Renewable energy, electric cars, cleaner industrial processes and all that. But these efforts are increasingly being seen as inadequate to solve the problem fully and effectively. Firstly, this is because, as we've said, there are hundreds of gigatons of emissions from the past century and a half of human activities that are already causing climate change and leading to disastrous effects. All that carbon is in the air, it's not going anywhere. 
Secondly, we're simply decarbonising too slowly to keep climate change to a manageable level. And thirdly, because we know there will be leftover emissions from hard to decarbonise industries for a really long time. Things like aviation and construction, you know, they're proving slow to decarbonise. It's not easy. And so they're still going to be emitting even if everything else is decarbonised. In other words, we're not decarbonising fast enough. We probably won't decarbonise fast enough. And even if we did, we still have a lot of stuff in the atmosphere to deal with. Exactly. And that's where this second lever comes in. Increasing the rate at which carbon comes back down we might see it as giving the carbon cycle a helping hand and restoring a bit of that balance to this process. This is exactly what we mean when we talk about carbon removal. So Tom, what did you know about carbon removal before we got into all this? In all honesty, I really didn't actually know that much. I've got a startup social enterprise background and my interest in climate and climate change really came about over the last couple of years, having spent lots of time with early stage entrepreneurs that were looking at uh, opportunities in these spaces. And I had heard about this carbon removal industry, this ethereal thing that people mentioned in whispers. And I understood fundamentally that it meant taking carbon, which had been emitted, and somehow bringing it back down or removing it from the atmosphere. But I didn't really understand the different solutions that were there, the, the policies that were in place. What about you? Yeah, I didn't know all that much about it either. My background is sort of in building communities for climate action and some climate education stuff. And as we've already sort of mentioned, the focus was always on decarbonisation, lowering our impact by lowering our emissions. And carbon removal was just sort of like something that was like a thing of the future, I think. I guess we're now in the future because it's here. And that mitigation reduction part is often the centre of attention in climate conversation. And maybe rightly so, but discussions around carbon removal have really been heating up lately. Excuse the pun. You know I won't excuse the pun, Tom. I love a pun. I will applaud it. Yeah, and that increasing enthusiasm around this topic is really what drew me in. You know, I didn't know a lot about it, and it seemed like it was becoming more and more important in this whole climate conversation. Something that's really struck me as we've explored this subject is the difference between public perception of carbon removal and the importance that more and more climate scientists are placing on it as a like really integral part of our whole future. I think most people, you know, like us, either don't really know that much about it or assume it's a relatively minor part of the solution when it comes to climate change. But most of the experts that we've been speaking to and, and reading about have emphasised that it's absolutely vital if we're going to keep to our climate goals. Totally true. Take the IPCC, for instance. Throughout this series, we're going to be drawing on a lot of work from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They bring together thousands of the world's top experts who review the latest evidence and come to consensus positions on all things climate change. It's sort of the climate gospel from scientists from around the world. And when the IPCC says something, the world should really sit up and pay attention. And in one of their most recent reports, their main message was that we need to do everything that we can to limit global warming to that 1.5 degrees in order to avoid ever more catastrophic impacts. In all of their scenarios that manage to keep just 1.5 degrees of warming, even those where we decarbonise as quickly as possible, 
we still needed carbon removal. And not just, you know, some at a certain point down the line. We're talking a lot starting now. Over the next few episodes, we'll be speaking with scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs and a host of other experts who are really leading this effort and helping to make carbon removal a reality. We asked a few of them, why is carbon removal so important? We hear a lot about we have to get to net zero, we have to stop emissions. And don't get me wrong, I completely agree. We should stop as many emissions on the planet as we can. But in getting to zero, I would make the point that one plus minus one is also zero. So if we have an emission and we can permanently, safely and measurably eliminate that emission, that's also net zero. Towards the end of 2018, the IPCC's 1.5 degree report, that was one of the first times that it was recognized that all scenarios to keep us under 1.5 degrees of warming require some kind of carbon removal. And it's not a little bit of carbon removal. It's between 5 and 15 gigatons per year by the year 2050, which is just a massive amount. These negative emissions technologies are going to become more and more important as time goes on, especially as we see we're not making our targets. We're going to need to start pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. 244 companies are discharging 32 billion tons a year and nothing's changed so and we're running out of time so maybe let's at least mobilize a plan b while we're trying to figure out how to get that side working the need is irrefutable it's scientific fact we need cdr just go open up the ipcc reports right and the basics on that is uh basically a bathtub problem of the stock that's in the air right now of greenhouse gases is very high and we need to both turn off the faucet so there's less flowing in but also drain some of the tub and the way that you drain the water in the tub is by removing it from the atmosphere. Our focus on carbon removal in this series it's not to downplay the importance of emissions reduction. We're not trying to steal limelight away from the vitally important work of decarbonisation. But if we only focus on decarbonisation, we're just missing a huge opportunity. Mm. As so many of our guests have been keen to point out, decarbonisation is also essential. But as we've just discussed, even if we could flip a switch tomorrow and not emit any more greenhouse gases, we'd still need carbon removal. It's just a part of the equation that we cannot afford to ignore. Right, okay, let's have a terminology check. I love a little language chat. You do love your language chats, Emily. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of terminology to wrap our heads around in this topic. So we're just going to quickly whip through it. I really think we need this. So we've already been throwing around phrases like carbon removal, mitigation, reduction, and what have you. And that's just the beginning. Yeah, so throughout the series, we'll be referring to carbon removal, by which we mean removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and maybe, hopefully, then finding something else to do with it or somewhere else to put it. And this is sometimes also called negative emissions. You've also got CDR, which stands for carbon dioxide removal, drawdown. These are all one and the same. You might have also heard the terms carbon capture, carbon capture and storage, carbon capture use and storage. These are all related terms, slightly different concepts, and with different implications that we'll be getting into in coming episodes. Something else we hear a lot about these days is net zero. It's the big buzzword right now. 
Yeah, it is a big buzzword. Everyone's doing it, or at least claiming that they're doing it. And when someone says net zero, they mean net zero carbon emissions. Your net emissions are the sum of your emissions and your negative emissions. So therefore, if you're a company, for instance, you can achieve net zero by sort of cancelling out your carbon emissions through negative emissions. And cancelling out is used there very loosely. So that's why it's called net zero and not just zero. And as we've mentioned, aiming for zero emissions globally tomorrow, for example, is unrealistic. And which you'll remember is one of the reasons why we need carbon removal. And companies go about achieving net zero with the help of carbon credits. A carbon credit isn't something tangible that you, know, you can hold in your hand, but it's something that you can purchase as sort of a promise of either carbon being removed from the atmosphere or carbon emissions being avoided altogether. These two categories of credits mirror the mitigation versus removal distinction, and they are both measured in tons. So one removal credit equals one ton of CO2 removed from the atmosphere, and one avoidance credit equals the prevention of a ton of CO2 from entering the atmosphere that otherwise could have been emitted. Exactly. On a global scale, the IPCC recognises net zero carbon dioxide emissions as when anthropogenic CO2 emissions are balanced globally by anthropogenic CO2 removals over a specified period. That's a direct quote from the IPCC. Beyond net zero is the idea of net negative carbon emissions. If we do manage to get emissions to net zero, the atmospheric parts per million will stabilise. But it's only once we get to a net negative world where that parts per million number might start coming down. And that's what we're aiming for, fewer parts per million. Thank you for indulging my language chat, Tom. <laughs> You're welcome. I think it's good to acknowledge that a lot of this is probably well known amongst our listeners. You know, they're, they're not brand new to this, but for some listeners, it will be new stuff. And so it's really good to sort of clarify where we're starting from. For sure. And actually, these clarifications might be vital. In 2020, the Tyndall Centre found that less than 10% of Americans were familiar with carbon removal and less than 6% of Brits. Yeah, that's kind of exactly why we're here, right? Over the research that we've done about carbon removal, and you know, I'm, I'm still no expert, but I can tell you that it's more important than I ever imagined. And it's a really huge topic. The fact that so many of us still don't really know much about this is exactly the point of this show. <laughs> we want to start a conversation or, you know, incite some curiosity or point people in the right direction to learn more about this. Absolutely. And I've got no doubt that even in the months since that report from the Tyndall Centre was released, those numbers will have increased. I don't think it's just us that's been hearing more and more about carbon removal this year. But as you said, for just how important this topic is, there's still not nearly enough clear information about it out there. So we've discussed the problem a little bit. Why don't we chat about some solutions, Emily? Solutions. That's what we're about. But we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. This is only episode one, Tom. Yeah, I know. But just a little teaser, you know, maybe to whet the appetite. A sort of amuse-bouche like a, a shallow snorkel rather than a deep dive sort of thing. Let's go with that. And thanks to our language clarification there, we talked about goals for net zero and the idea of purchasing carbon credits. 
Yeah, and actually already alluded to the hidden complexity of all this. Whatever process we choose to offset carbon emissions will have costs of its own. Biodiversity loss, maybe, or resource use, or human costs, or maybe other energy costs. So if we're going to help solve the climate emergency by pulling that second lever, by drawing down carbon from the atmosphere, here are some things we're going to need from our solutions. First up, affordability. In this space, we often talk about this in terms of cost per tonne. What it's going to cost us to remove one tonne of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And these costs can vary significantly between the different solutions. And it's something big to consider. And beyond the financial costs, Emily, you've already mentioned some other important considerations. Yes, land, fresh water, energy, they're already in really high demand. So future innovations need to be very careful with these resources. Yeah, totally agree. And this also brings us to our next consideration, scalability. A lot of the solutions we'll be looking at over this series are already being deployed in different settings to help remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But we know we need to go bigger, a lot bigger. We're currently emitting around 50 gigatons of CO2 equivalent each year. We want to get that as low as possible. And even then, we're still going to have to remove at the gigaton scale. And actually, the only way we'll know how close we are to actually achieving this is with accurate measurement. Something we're going to look at with many of our guests throughout the series is how accurately we can measure the removal potential of each of these proposed solutions. This is really important, not only so that we know how well we're doing, but also so that we can put a price on each turn. Hopefully a really accurate price. And the final big question that we're going to be asking through this series is, does this solve the problem long term? Permanence. Woohoo, another big word for us. <laughs> a word you'll be hearing a lot from us over the coming episodes. Yeah, and it's one thing capturing carbon dioxide, but if it's then released back into the atmosphere a year later, it hasn't solved our problem. Think back to that carbon cycle. We're trying to restore the balance there, so we need long-term solutions. This question of exactly what long-term means and how to achieve it is a really important part of this debate. With these themes in mind, as we progress through this season, we're going to be looking into the solutions that can be broadly split into two categories, nature-based solutions and technological or engineered solutions. So essentially, we're going to be talking about trees and robots. <laughs> exactly. I mean, trees is a really big one when it comes to nature-based solutions. Obviously, their natural capacity for sequestering carbon is, you know, well advertised, I would say. But there are other natural carbon sinks too, and we can help them to actually do that job better. These solutions often have all sorts of other benefits as well, alongside the carbon removal. And we already have the capacity to deploy them. But some of our guests will point out that the reliability of nature-based solutions is still uncertain. That's where our tech solutions come in. Examples could include direct air capture or bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. But building machines and technologies that remove carbon from the air can be expensive. Really expensive and introducing all sorts of technical terms that we don't know about yet. That's the point of the podcast. <laughs> but can these costs come down over time? And can these tech-based solutions exceed some of the natural solutions in terms of permanence or land use needs? We're going to go further into these pros and cons in later episodes because, as with everything, there are complexities and nuances. Oh, and there's a final consideration that we definitely should mention. 
people, you know, the human societal element of all this. We've already talked a bit about public perception, which is obviously one side of it, but this emerging field will affect people around the world in all kinds of different ways. As technologies develop and land use changes and resources are redirected, humans will be undoubtedly affected. And sadly, it's often marginalised or some of the most vulnerable societies that bear the brunt of this kind of development. Personally, I feel that with this new field, we have the chance to change that, or if we're not careful, to repeat it. So how can we tread carefully as we dive into all this innovation? Along with the questions of finance and resource use, this you know, really links to policy and the relationship between affected peoples and policymakers. There's so much to get into, and we're not going to have time in this first season to explore every solution in depth, nor cover every angle of the solutions that we do discuss. But you know, that's what season two, three, four, five even, hopefully four, <laughs> fingers crossed. Yes, optimism. I love it. I'm excited about this, Tom. I feel a lot of energy, a lot of anticipation for all this. And there's just so much to get our teeth stuck into here, you know? Yeah. And it feels really timely. You know, you said, Tom, the carbon removal space is heating up and people are really talking about it, tweeting about it, starting new ventures in this space. And I feel really lucky that we've had the chance to speak to some of those innovators who are out there working on these new, inspiring technologies and techniques. And we've spoken to some really impressive veterans in this field, too. And it may seem like this is just something that's emerging right now, but people have been working in this field and been working on carbon removal for decades, actually. And there's a lot of expertise out there. It's great to get that range of experience and insight. It really is. And what's more, we need this now more than we ever have before. The scale of the net zero challenge has become ever more apparent and our failure to act quickly enough means carbon removal solutions are becoming more and more vital. Yeah, exactly. And a decade ago, much of the science and technology that the space relies on just wasn't there yet. It wasn't ready. You know, some may argue that it still isn't ready, and we'll get into all that. But we have spent the last decade or so accumulating knowledge and learning so that the tech can now be implemented. Well, when I say we, of course, I obviously mean a community of scientists and engineers and researchers and all sorts of people who are much more qualified than myself. They've been working very hard on all our behalfs. A decade ago, we weren't ready. But in a decade's time, it's going to be too late. And the case is clear. We're experiencing the effects already of climate change. And now is the time to act on this. And it has to be fast. Right. Let's get going. This podcast is brought to you in part by Patch. Patch is the marketplace for negative emissions that makes it easy for businesses to neutralise their carbon footprint through a network of high-quality carbon removal projects. A perfect fit for this show, don't you think, Tom? 100%. Patch enables companies in fintech, travel, e-commerce and more to estimate emissions and embed carbon removal directly into their products or services, all with just a few lines of code. This means businesses and their end customers can be more sustainable and participate in automated climate action. Just head to patch.io to find out more. Thanks so much to our team who make this series possible. Our researcher and fact checker, Henry Irvine. Our composer, Sam Carter. Our graphic designer, Reke Campbell. Our editor, Mercy Barno. Our producer, Ben Weaver-Hinks. 
our project manager, Patrick Carter. And our executive producer, Sam Floyd. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode of The Carbon Removal Show. If you like this first episode, subscribe and leave us a review and help us reach as many people as possible. Join us next time when we're going to be talking about trees, specifically why trees alone won't save us. Good cheery note to end on there, Tom. To learn more, go to restored.cc. See you next time. Co-fruition.